All right, last week should have made you passionate, pleading with unbelievers for repentance. And if last week made you passionate, this week's going to make you angry. <laughs> what does a defeated enemy do? An, an opponent that has clearly lost, what options do they have? There's, there's surrender, there's giving up, and then there's desperate destruction. Taking down anyone and anything he can on his way down. Our great enemy exists with such delusion, such hatred for the ultimate glory of God Almighty that he has no real option. Alas, he resorts to the only option he has left, desperate destruction. Ultimately, it's, it's self-destruction. Revelation eleven nineteen. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. At the very center of the book, John records the vision that reveals the deepest perspective of the church's spiritual conflict, the battle. Remember what we said uh, a couple of weeks ago. If you don't know much about American and world history, there's a lot about the movie Forrest Gump that's just going to pass by you, right? It's, it's similar here with the Old Testament. If you don't have Old Testament eyes and Old Testament background, then there's a lot that we're going to miss right here because the tabernacle, the temple, if you have an Old Testament mind, that means that is the very most concentrated space where God's presence has, has like the most volume. The Ark of the Covenant seen within the temple here in Revelation to Old Testament eyes, that would have been seen as the, the most concentrated representation of the Lord's presence. As a container, this ark held, among other objects, two tablets of law that God gave to Moses, which, he, which represented God's covenant relationship with his people. The Ark of the Covenant occupied the most holy space in the tabernacle and later the temple. According to 1 Chronicles 28, 2, Psalm 99, verse 5, and then also Psalm 132, verses 7 through 8, the Ark of the Covenant was considered to be God's footstool. And as God sat enthroned above it, this is the image that an Old Testament mind would start to, be, start to draw, that, that seeing this is the most concentrated space of the very presence of the Lord. And when you see that, when you encounter that here, what do we see in the very presence of the Lord? Storms coming. John takes us right up to the very presence of the Lord and we see flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, heavy hail, violence, storm. Each of the next three weeks, we're gonna be diving as deep as Revelation gets into the deepest dimension of the conflict. First this week with the battle, 
Second, with God's victory amidst rebellion. And then third, with the utter futility and fall of rejectors. You want to understand salvation history. You want to see things in how history has played out and God's cosmic reality overlaid on top of it. And you want to make sense of all that. This is covering the deepest, most mysterious content of the great reveal. Today is spread over just three chapters, chapters 12, 13, and 14. We're exploring the message of the open scroll now in greater depth than last week. An exploration full of signs. John even calls them, as you open Revelation chapter 12, John even calls them signs. Things that are pointing to something else. See, a sign isn't the thing itself. It points to a thing. Chapter 12, verse 1, a great sign appeared. And again in verse 3, and another sign appeared in heaven. Once more, a sign is not the thing itself. It points to the thing. So there's an important statement here I want to make. Important, important reminder, because one of the things that, that if we're only engaging in a revelation study, only engaging in apocalyptic literature, one of the things that we f- can forget is that just because we're taking this content symbolically or representationally, that doesn't mean we take everything about scripture that way. If you were reading the Gospels or some of the epistles, some of the statements do not have this same kind of treatment that we're applying to Revelation to it in symbolism and representation. So while we have been encountering things largely representative and symbolic, that's because we're dealing with an apocalyptic book. Well, who says it's apocalyptic? (laughs) That'd be the author. John, in the first verse, chapter one, verse one, he said the apocalypse or the revelation, we translate it revelation, the Greek word was apocalypsis. It's an apocalyptic book. We're going to encounter these things as signs, representation. So seeing all these signs play out in the scroll, beginning with chapter 12, a significant manifestation of the ancient conflict that began all the way back in Genesis 3 is unfolding here. You've got the serpent, the great can't quit, won't cease malevolent beast, pictured here in chapter 12 as a dragon. Verse 9 tells us other names and identities for this this picture of the fullness of evil. Verse 9 says, uh, the great dragon, the ancient serpent, the devil, Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. And if you're like me, sometimes when when you're seeing these signs, you're going, okay, a dragon. (laughs) What's with a dragon? A, A fictional beast. Why a dragon? Well, you'll never guess, but it's found, it draws from the Old Testament here. Old Testament imagery. As a bit of homework that unfortunately we don't have time to cover tonight, I want you to consider making a note to read through Job 41. Sometime maybe in the next week when you have some time, uh, read through Job 41. It'll be like a, a biblical trip to the Shire or Narnia, 
or something like that. It's, it's this out-of-the-world experience. Job 41 pictures a great reptilian sea monster called Leviathan. Now, Leviathan draws on ancient stories of a mystical, mythical, multi-headed creature, a, a crocodile, snake, dragon-like, multi-headed beast is pictured there. Great and terrible And God is its slayer. I wonder where are these verses on some Christian mugs? Like I'm going to read Psalm 74, verses 13 through 14. You, God, divided the sea by your might. You broke the heads of the sea monsters on the waters. You crushed the heads of Leviathan. You gave him as food for the creatures of the wilderness. Isaiah 27.1, In that day the Lord with his hard and great and strong sword will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, Leviathan, the, the twisting serpent, and he will slay the dragon that is in the sea. Now I know we don't see any pitchforks here in these pictures, but make no mistake, this is Satan, the great serpent, the great deceiver, and God is his slayer, his conqueror. And still, I I come back to that question I asked at the very beginning, what does a clearly defeated enemy do? He fights. Chapter 12 continues. We're, we're summarizing, kind of skimming across the first few verses of chapter 12 here. The woman was pregnant, and behold, the great red dragon stood before the woman so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. These are not scenes we should be showing in Timber Kids. Verse 7, war arose in heaven. The enemy who is cosmically defeated by Michael and other angels. Man, I I wish we had more of a picture of what, what that all entailed right there. But destined only to battle now on earth, and the dragon sees where his real ultimate threat will come from. This child, the child born of this woman. Born of mankind, one who is to rule according to chapter 12. And, and maybe your Bible might have a note that my Bible has next to that word, one who is to rule. And the footnote that I looked at is one who is to shepherd. There's a wink towards the identity of, of this baby, one who rules like a shepherd. God's got a thing for, for lambs, sheep, shepherds. And so the dragon waits, ready to destroy the greatest threat that's going to come against him. And throughout the life of Jesus, even evil efforts to destroy him from Herod and from crowds wanting to throw him off a cliff, undoubtedly the greatest threat was certainly to be found in Jesus' crucifixion. And yet even then, Before the dragon can accomplish his violent plan to consume and destroy the child, verse 5 says the child is caught up to God and to his throne, risen, where he proves ever victorious and out of reach of the great enemy. 
miraculously, astonishingly, joyously, through Jesus's resurrection and ascension, the dragon's attempt to destroy God's salvation purposes through the Messiah has been decisively defeated. The greatest threat to the enemy is secure and is victorious and is unthreateningly preserved in the presence of God Almighty. Hallelujah. Amen. Then we get to a fascinating insight into a cosmic battle that, that layers yet another level of defeat upon the wicked dragon. Verse 7 of chapter 12. Now, war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated. And there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Defeated. Cosmically thrown down. And so what does an utterly defeated enemy do? The dragon is unyielding hell-bent on attacking the woman and her seed. That's an image that actually draws on Joseph's dream in Genesis 37, a detour we don't have time for, but representing Israel, the people of God. But after the dragon is cosmically conquered by Michael and his angelic force in God's space and thrown down to earth, our space, here he breeds his, his hatred his violence, bringing nations along with him in his beast-like nature and pursuits, taking as many with him as he can in destruction. And verse 16, as he wages his war, even the earth itself comes to the help of the woman against the enemy. You can't win against an almighty God. He will call all of his angelic force. He will even call forth the earth to defend his purposes. He will employ all of his creation to swallow up the efforts of the enemy. And he will especially prove your defeat by those that you try to conquer and oppress with your violence, even if it kills them. Even if it kills them. Pick up in the middle of verse 10. The accuser of our brothers and sisters has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God, and they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they loved not their lives even until death martyrs, those slain for their faith are to be considered the special forces of the lamb. Martyrs are to be considered the special forces of the army of the lamb. Martyrs like Jesus himself are the ones that demonstrate that the absolute worst that a defeated enemy can do is still conquered. 
Jesus was the firstborn of the dead. In chapter 1, verse 5, it tells us, so too throughout Revelation, the martyrs are raised up. They're vindicated. They're put on the front lines of the army of the Lamb, essentially showing the enemy, here we stand. You tried to come at the people of God with the worst that this world can threaten us with, and here we stand. You can't win. We're not going to keep reading this, this verse by verse tonight, but, but this is all so powerful here. Verse 12, therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows his time is short. The defeated enemy knows that his time is short. His defeat is certain. See, See, church, this is where we glean that humans are never really the ultimate enemy. Even if you're facing Rome, even those states and those powers that should be resisted, there are forces that should be resisted of the enemy and they are conquered through the blood of the lamb and their testimony proving that their violence is futile. Why is it, we covered this today in a chapel as a staff at Timberline Church, why is it that where the persecution is the heaviest, the church grows the strongest? Proof, proof that this is real, that this matters. And even if you threaten us, oppress us, and even kill us, it won't stop our God's movement. That's why martyrs are placed at the very forefront. That's why I call them the special forces of the army of the lamb. The one thing that tells our enemy and hopefully tells people around the world, the enemy's resistance is futile. Look at the blood and the testimony of the martyrs. It doesn't stop the church. Amen? Never forget what we encountered last week in chapter nine, that why does God do all this? Why does God allow all this to unfold so that some may see the futility of their oppression of God's people and his salvation plan and that they would repent? Chapter 13, we're gonna do some more summarizing and skimming here. Picks up the same conflict from the earthly realities at play. Here, now, we see two beasts. <laughs> For some of you that came to a revelation study, wanting to get to all that, that kind of surpassing, weird, deep stuff, here we go. Two beasts. Beasts is a concept that draws from the Old Testament, Daniel, chapters 7 through 12. It's some, some really seriously strange and deep imagery there, but but. Learning what we're learning in this study at least helps us know some of that. One, one beast comes representing military power. The other represents the economic propaganda machine that exalts their realities as divine, all that matters, ultimate power as a false prophet. By the way, Quick side note here, for those of us that are, now that we're getting into the beasts and the deepness of this, this conversation, for those of us that are waiting for the Antichrist 
to pop up at any moment here in Revelation, you won't find that name in the entire book of Revelation. The Antichrist, that's a, that's a name, that's a concept that draws from 1 John and 2 John. And as a ultimate deceiver with blasphemous and wicked messages and temptations, then in Lev, or Revelation language, I believe that's, that's the beast, the false prophet here. Verse 11, the beast's blasphemous calls are demands for worship. Not just for a single individual, but, but also for world powers that wage the enemy's war with power to overwhelm people and probably even carrying himself winsomely and drawing people of all nations to put their faith, their hope, their confidence in anything other than Yahweh. Even Revelation tells us, even mimicking the slain, still standing lamb, the beast, we read, seemed to have a mortal wound, verse 3. But he was healed, causing the whole world to marvel. Take, take note of that. Does that sound familiar? Like the beast is stealing a plan from something that God has already done. An unholy anti trinity, the first beast of chapter 13, the second beast as a false prophet, and then a dragon with deceit and misdirection, just stealing tactics from the enemy's playbook. The enemy cannot come up with anything really effective on its own, but borrowing from what Yahweh has done, because Yahweh has put eternity in the hearts of all people, and the enemy knows if I just, just mimic that, I can make the worship that people were made for misdirected onto anything else. He's going to employ this mimicking tactic again with one of the most infamous numbers known to mankind. Six, six, six. We'll get there in just a bit. This time of the dragon and the beast is terrifying in deception. Because deception is about the only weapon that the enemy can use. Can't win. So might as well resort to deception and delusions. The great deception of this age is that the enemy knows that mankind thirsts and was created for a savior. Satan knows mankind needs a savior and one to worship. So he sets up anything and anyone that might appear oppressive or impressive or powerful or demand allegiance of men, powers and authorities. So that in their desperation to have a savior, in their desperation to have an everlasting hope, they might give in to the enemy's lie. And many do. They find or create nations, saviors, objects to worship. And they say, this is my God. This is my world. This is my hope and my dependence. We see it all across our lives and our world today. It's a wicked deception, the enemy's plan. Does it sound familiar here? 
Does it sound like maybe this is the part of the scroll in which you and I are living, a time of great deception where the enemy is making it seem like he's winning? This is why we have this great gift of revelation. Know what kind of battle you're in, church. Know the ways that the enemy tries to to distract you and share delusions. It's the lure of the enemy active in deceiving people in our world. Hear it, church. Endure. That's why we have revelation. That's why we have this blatant, clearly presented statement in Revelation pointing to its ultimate purpose right here in the middle of the book. If anything should be highlighted or or underlined in your Bibles in Revelation, it should be these verses, these purpose statements. Chapter 13, at the end of verse 10, here is a call for the endurance and the faith of the saints. You, church, are in this battle with the delusions of the beast right now. So what would Revelation say to you? Here is a call for the endurance and the faith of the saints. And then it's echoed once more just a handful of verses later in chapter 14, verse 12. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. Don't be deceived, people of the seven churches. Don't give in to despair and allegiance to things of this world. It's the enemy that is fighting a losing battle. Not you, church. It is the enemy that is fighting a losing battle. Chapter 13, verse 16, each of the beasts demand total allegiance, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave are marked on the right hand or the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. That is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This, John says, calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. Scary. It's like we should turn around three times, spit on the ground whenever that number's mentioned here. This is where people will, will very quickly grab newspaper headlines, like, like we have newspapers anymore, but they'll, they'll grab headlines that are going on in the world and they'll say, I see 666, the mark of the beast in our world today. And I'll tell you what, I'm not sure they're necessarily wrong, at least not symbolically. Do you want to know what 666, the mark of the beast, represents? I want you, if you have your Bibles, read very carefully the end of chapter 13 again. John takes on the language of of like a math teacher here. He says, okay, smart people, add it up. You're going to need to do some math here. Calculate, he says, the number of the beast. You're going to have to do some numerical adding up here. And the number is a man. This is like a a riddle because Hebrew letters are also numbers. 
They have numerical value. The number is a man, he says. And it's no coincidence that the name Nero Caesar, a name that that would strike fear into the heart of every believer that first received this book of Revelation, that Nero Caesar and Beast both add up to 666. Nero's a beast, John's saying. Pastor Brent actually recently shared with me um, in some early manuscripts, they actually have it not as 666, but 616. And some of you are going, great. Now I have another number that I gotta be terrified about encountering. And the crazy thing is that, that in the different manuscripts, let me make sure I got this right. After doing a little research, the textual argument for 666 is much stronger than 616. But here's the cool thing Pastor Brent was emphasizing, that either 666 or 616, both of them add up to Nero Caesar. Caesar Nero was written differently in Greek and Latin. So when written in Latin, Caesar Nero adds up to 616. And when written in Greek, Caesar Nero adds up to 666. So the cool thing there is even with this slight textual variant, it further reinforces that Nero is this apocalyptic numerological riddle of who the beast is. It's this vision's way of speaking directly to the people of the seven churches and what they're going through. We're not just talking about some cosmic reality that's going to happen in in some other setting. John and this vision is going directly to the people being harshly oppressed by Nero and saying, yeah, that's the beast doing that. Nero's a beast. Nero is this economic and militaristic battle plan of the dragon being played out right now in your lives, people of of Sardis, people of Pergamum and Ephesus and Thyatira and Philadelphia and Laodicea. You're in this battle right now with the beast. Now, the mark of the beast in 666 doesn't mean that Nero is the only representation of the beast. Nero is an example of a pattern that that was set up all the way back in Daniel, where Nebuchadnezzar of the time, that was the beast. And then later to be followed by Persia, another beast, and Greece, another beast, and now Rome in John's day. And this is where I think that applications to modern day realities may not be completely off base. Nations, any nation becomes beast-like when they exalt themselves and demand total unyielding allegiance. This continues to apply to any nation. And not just any nation, any society, any culture or subculture or cause that acts in this way demanding total allegiance from people. There's that purpose of revelation echoing, echoing, echoing. Where's your allegiance, church? Where's your hope and your ultimate loyalty? Endure, church. 
But we're not completely done solving this riddle yet in case you feel like, okay, we kind of just cracked a, a weird numerological reality with 666. We're not done yet because while you and I tend to focus on the number, while, while you and I tend to focus on the number, if we were a first century Jew, it's where the number is to be placed that would have had major implications for first century readers. Total allegiance, everyone, rich, poor, slave, free, you can't buy or sell without having this mark. Everyone needs this mark. Do you remember where? On their hand or on their forehead. And if you're a first century Jew, you'd go, wait, wait, I've heard that before. The enemy's just stealing from God's playbook again. Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 8. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes for those of you anatomically challenged that'd be your forehead <laughs> the enemy is just a poser God is the one that demands total allegiance over your hand, your actions, and over your forehead, your thoughts. God is the only one that deserves our unyielding and total allegiance. And he doesn't use military power or economic manipulation. He uses love. He wants love to be written on your hand, on your actions. He wants love to be written on your forehead, your thoughts. The allegiance that the beast demands is the anti-Shema. When you read 666 and the mark of the beast to be written on your hand and your forehead, a first century Jew would go, that's just the Shema stolen by the enemy. Let me read it again. The absolute greatest commandment in the entire Old Testament. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And you shall bind these words as a sign on your hand. And they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. 666 is the anti-Shema. Loyalty to anything other than Yahweh. That's why I think it's very relevant in our world today. 666, the anti-Shema. What deception. Add it up, people, John says. Stay loyal to your ultimate allegiance. He's about had it with all this deception of the great enemy. Chapter 14 then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. Here we go. The battle's getting tense. This is like the scenes in Braveheart where, where the enemy appears on the mountaintops for the battle. 
This is getting dramatic. And the voice I heard was this, or the voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne. And this is where Revelation continues to to kind of be this, you expected that and you got this. You see the army of the Lamb standing on the hillsides. You expect battle hymn of the Republic, right? Or some kind of military drumbeat. Here we go, some kind of aggressive music. But what you get is harp players? Harps? Harps is not dramatic, aggressive battlefield music. Harps are peacemaking music. You don't hear harps on the battlefield ever. Where do you hear harps in the, biblically? If you're, you're a first century Jew, not, not today, we don't have many of those, but, but think like a first century Jew. Where, where would you have heard harps? In the temple. In the temple, first century readers would read and hear that, that the army of the Lamb stands and what is heard is harp music. That's not what it sounds like on a battlefield. That's what it sounds like in the temple. Modern translation for you and I, that's what it sounds like when I go to church. I want you to picture this. In fact, I I really want you to participate with me for a second. Close your eyes. Close your eyes and try to receive this. The army of the Lamb, the 144,000 assembled on Mount Zion with the Lamb, with the name of the Father on their foreheads. And like a pregame hype song or a military drum roll swells their victory worship music. Like, like maybe in the early 2000s, people would have heard a roar of, our God is an awesome God. Or in the 1990s, they would have heard, shout to the Lord all the earth. Or maybe for, for centuries even, people would have heard, amazing grace. You can open your eyes now. This This scene, in the battle with the enemy, you don't hear battle music, you hear worship music. And the greatest renditions of those songs that has ever existed. That's what I hear in church. That's not a fight song, it's a victory song. From the new Jerusalem, the spiritually pure, the undefiled ones, representing language here of virgins, uncorrupted, following the lamb wherever he goes. Their song, accompanied by messages from victorious angels, goes out to the nations that Babylon has fallen. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. Chapter 14, verse 8. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. 
Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. Babylon and all Babylon-like nations has fallen. There's that sense of time again, yet again. Remember in week one where we we talked about that sense of time and I gave you a life jacket and all that kind of stuff. Since Babylon has fallen, that's a perfected past tense representing a definite completion of a still pending reality, still yet to come. It's this outside of time message saying it's certain. It's secure. It's known and held secure by the God that is outside of time. Babylon, Rome, terrorists. Your oppressors, your deceivers, their time is done. This is good news, people. Hear it, celebrate it, proclaim it, repent and believe. Final justice over the defeated enemy is certain and forthcoming. Chapter 14, verses 14 on, presents a stark choice for the seven churches. In light of this, will they endure and resist all the temptations and the deception of Babylon? Or will they follow the beast and suffer the same defeat? It's a real choice, then and now. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Who's this? That'd be King Jesus, the cloud rider. Cloud riding, we learned earlier in this study, is emblematic of what? The day of the Lord. Coming judgment and salvation, depending on which side you're on, depending on what choice you're making. And and here, Jesus also has something new in his hand. Did you catch what it is? A sickle, kind of like an image of the pagan grim reaper, ready for a harvest. Because in the rest of chapter 14, there are two harvests. Two harvests. First, there's the harvest of grain. A harvest of grain, a gathering to himself of all the believers. No wonder in his earthly time, Jesus was constantly talking about agricultural parables. He knew what was coming. Matthew 13, 37. The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. He saw the coming harvest. When those of good, righteous soil receiving his word and his message would would bear great fruit in their lives. And he would gather them to himself as a harvest of grain. And then there's the harvest of the wine grapes. And we have a sort of alcohol representation here with humanity's intoxication with evil. What's the destiny of that? Being stamped out as you would stamp and crush grapes to make wine. He who comes on the clouds either comes as a gospel sower 
or a just reaper. Verse 20, and the winepress was trodden outside the city and blood flowed from the winepress. Blood will be paid for your sin. It's dire, and it has always been that way with animal sacrifices in the temple and the cross on Good Friday. This is why, despite what what many of us may want in terms of picturing Jesus in terms of revelation, why the conquering Jesus will always be the still-standing bloodied lamb. When he appears over the final battle, he has his robe dipped in blood. But it's not the enemy's blood that his robe is dipped in. It's his own. An ever-present reminder of what he did and how he conquered. How people can conquer in his name. And it's the futility of everyone who rejects his blood. And will forever pay for their own sins. I know with the wine press harvest, this is getting a little dark, a little hard. Remember the toughness of of the dreaded chapter nine from last week. This week is the battle. Next week is God's victory amidst rebellion. The bowls of wrath fully being poured out. The great reveal is as bold and as rich as is necessary to call dramatically all people to repent. And as a call for his church to not be deceived or to be confused in seasons of seemingly dwindling hope, God will be glorified and he is worthy. Write that on your hands, your actions. Write that on your forehead, your thoughts. God is victorious and God will be glorified. And in his snake-like deception, our great enemy responds, no, he won't. That side is a losing side. And the end, Armageddon, is drawing near. So as we conclude with communion, I'd invite you, if you're able, to stand with me. I want us all to remember that blood will be paid for sin. It's God's unthreatened plan from all of the beginning. This is why, despite what we want to picture, Jesus will always be the bloodied lamb, reminding us for all of eternity what he did, how he secured victory for his people. Sometimes communion, this remembering what Jesus endured on the cross can be a solemn time, a hard time. But I want us, people of the church, as we grab the bread, we can remember that his plan was successful. His plan secured eternity for all of the army of the Lamb, and the enemy can do nothing about it. Isn't that great? This plan for all of salvation, the enemy can't touch. 
As we take the bread today, let's not take it today in solemnity. Let's take it in celebration. And as we turn and we, we acknowledge that all sin must be paid for, blood will be shed. Is it ours or is it his? Once again, let's remember, yes, his blood was shed for our sake, but this is our victory cup. He intended it that way. Even death could not hold him. So this is a cup of cheers. This is a cup of celebration proclaiming the testimony and the blood of the lamb is all the blood that ever needs to be spilled for my sins. Jesus, thank you. Thank you. Hallelujah for the blood. Thank you, Jesus, for the blood. In your name we go as your church. Amen. Love you guys. Hope you have a great night. Remember that good news that we get to walk away with.